Hello, my fellow Astorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. And this is Valar Reredis. Valar Reredis is a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before, brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George R. R. Martin has said before and will likely say it again that this series was designed to be reread. And we're your tour guides on this journey, but even we doing this full time can't catch everything. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets where the discussions take place. That includes Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack. I suppose Twitter as well. You can join us on Patreon. It's one of the many ways to support the show. It's probably the main way to support the show. Helps us keep the lights on and keeping these episodes going. This week... It is episode three for A Storm of Swords, and we've got another fun batch of chapters, The beginning with Bran 1, The Gang Heads North, a.k.a. Bran's Warg Addiction. Davos 2, The Gang Meets Edric Storm, a.k.a. The One Where Davos Goes to Jail. Jamie 2, The One Where Jamie Remembers King Slaying, a.k.a. The Gang Avoids an Ambush. Tyrion 2, the one where Tyrion's firings are undone, a.k.a. Tyrion's Shea addiction. And Arya 2, the gang is captured by the Brotherhood, a.k.a. the one where Harwin recognizes Arya. Let's talk themes real briefly. As always, we start off with a little bit of a oh, pre-episode banter, not banter, but discussion about overall topics, things that are more of a high-level view, things that take place in multiple chapters rather than just one. The song theme continues a bit, maybe not as much as last week, probably not as much as next week either, but it's there. Now we get more of the Bear and the Maiden Fair. We get Tom of Sevens, a actual singer, Tyrion considering what to do with Simon Silvertongue, who hasn't yet tried his song Blackmail. That decision will be a lot easier for Tyrion once Tom or when Simon starts blackmailing. Though omnipresent throughout a song of Vice and Fire, Family and identity are particularly major themes today. Arya continues to choose new names and lives in fear of revealing who she really is. She doesn't even say her name out loud when she's crying that Harwin doesn't recognize her at first. Of course, he does eventually realize it's her and says her name, but it's notable that she doesn't. He does. Jamie realizes, though subconsciously, how much he's like Brienne a non-knight, and unlike a member of his own family, an actual knight. A decent enough guy, Sir Cleos, but not much of a knight, and definitely not much like Jamie. Jamie also has a poignant moment where he thinks of Brienne and Tyrion in similar light, a sure sign he's warming to her since he certainly loves his brother. Tyrion continues to be more like his father, even while trying not to be and warring with Cersei, when he should be worried about other people especially Littlefinger. Davos struggles with why he's alive at all and what his purpose is, decides he's an instrument of the gods, which is exactly what Melisandre is trying to convince Stannis he is. Huh. And Bran, where we start today, does not think of his family per se, meaning House Stark, but he does think of his family per se, his wolf pack, which is similar but not quite the same thing. And for Bran, though, that line is blurring. And there you go with our theme of identity. Is Bran a wolf? Is he a Stark? Is he both? Well, let's talk about it. And before we do, uh, a super chat from Tommy Pappas. 
for the best in the biz. Thanks, Tommy. Appreciate that. AKA Hema Hellmans. Check out the New Dad podcast. We'll have a full spot for that in a later episode. But that's his show. I, I highly recommend it, checking it out. It's new. Brand one is The Gang Heads North, AKA Brand's Warg Addiction. A key part of the chapter is Jojen trying hard to convince Bran of the dangers of spending too much time in summer. And to his point, well, this is the third straight Bran chapter that begins in summer. The next chapter will not, if you're wondering. It's notable, too, because he was trapped in the crypts last time. So hanging out in summer was kind of like the only thing to do. Now he's out in the world again, but still. And it's not just the pattern, but the length meaning he spends a significant amount of time inside summer about a fourth of the chapter. And that's even more than it sounds because there's only, well, there's a good bit of recap in this chapter and there's fewer brand chapters in this book. So it's uh, more relative in that sense. Now here's how the chapter starts. The ridge slanted sharply from the earth, a long fold of stone and soil shaped like a claw. So again, that's wolf interpretation of things. It always looks a little funny when it's the wolf perspective. Bran and Danny are the POVs that I'm most on the alert for when it comes to previously missed foreshadowing. I do believe there is some here and it's pretty powerful. In fact, powerful is the key word. A recurring theme is hidden here. George R. Martin cleverly makes Bran revel in Summer's skin as a way to avoid his own body, especially because the chapter ends with him feeling a wave of frustration and sadness about himself. And of course, that's natural. Of course, he's going to feel sadness and loss over his broken legs. But it's very misleading, too. As always, George hides things within other things. It's not the only reason he gets lost in summer, is what I'm saying. He absolutely laments the loss of his legs, of course. But wouldn't these powers be tempting no matter who he was? Even if we set aside that his fall seems to have paved the way for him to tap into his powers, even if we set that aside, Forget that entirely. I put it to you that his talents are so great that anyone would be tempted by using them. Quote, Prince. The man sound came into his head suddenly, yet he could feel the rightness of it. Prince of the green, prince of the wolf's wood. He was strong and swift and fierce, and all that lived in the good green world went in fear of him. Yeah, like imagine Robert Baratheon with this ability to become a wolf and go hunting. Like he would love that. He would totally get lost in it. And that would be true even when he wasn't deep in the throes of drunkenness and, and having become overweight and all that. Like even as a 21-year-old, he would love to do this. Anyone else who loves hunting, not just Robert, and and it's a very large slice of the population that loves hunting. Ramsey Bolton would go nuts for this ability. And not just hunting, and since we're talking about Ramsey, anyone who loves killing would love this power. And that's also, sadly, a large amount of people. To the most helpless child, to the most glorious and beloved king, this is a temptation. It's to this degree when we speak only of being a dire wolf, right? I'm, I'm only talking about how tempting it would be to live in a dire wolf skin. We haven't even talked about how tempting Bran's greater powers are going to be, the ones that he doesn't have yet that he will have. If so if dire wolf life is tempting, imagine how tempting it is to wield the full power of the Weirwood Network, to be able to look anywhere in time, to look inside anyone's head, and imagine, again, I brought this up before, when the threat of the others is gone. Because when the others are around, he's going to be 
using his powers probably to not die and to keep everyone else alive. It's uh, there's there's a bit more of a demand for that. But once the need for protection is gone, once there's no longer an existential threat, then what? Then the temptations would only grow, I think. Quote, The green seers were more than that. They were wargs as well, as you are. And the greatest of them could wear the skins of any beast that flies or swims or crawls and could look through the eyes of the werewoods as well and see the truth that lies beneath the world. Yeah, how could you not be tempted by that? I mean, just thinking about it, it's like, whoa, the the truth that lies beyond the world. How would you not want to take a peek at that or many peeks or just go there and stay there? So it's good that Bran seems to be a merciful and basically good person, but even he could go too far. Even he could be tempted and corrupted and, I don't know, Bran could become just as tragic a figure as any other. He's already pretty tragic at this point, but there's a lot of hope for him in the end, but I'm I'm a little less hopeful. I'm more in the middle. I have optimism, but it's cautious optimism. If we look at the specific contents of Bran's time in summer, in this chapter, it seems to emphasize what we're saying here even more. I don't think Bran loves killing, but he specifically enjoyed fighting as summer. He enjoyed being in charge of the other wolves. Like remember in in this chapter, Summer is fighting a wolf pack and makes them submit. And after that, Bran thinks how he would like to go back and do that some more. And he feels resentful at Jojen from trying to take that away from him. This seems a product of Bran being so young. And again, this chapter does remind us, as a few of these chapters, early chapters do, to kind of reset where things are, it's reminded to us that he's nine. Jojen is trying to get Bran to remember who he is and to remember specific instructions while in summer in order to kind of help him. It's like almost like lucid dreaming where you try to realize when you're asleep that you're asleep, that you're actually having a dream to become aware of your dream. This is going to help keep him keep his personalities distinct. You got to have the Prince of Winterfell separate from the Prince of the Green. But Bran, he's resistant to that. He kind of wants them to stay together. Quote. He wondered why they all listened to Jojen so much. He was not a prince like Bran, nor big and strong like Hodor, nor as good a hunter as Mira. Yet somehow it was always Jojen telling them what to do. I'm not sure we made a big enough deal of old Nan calling Jojen little grandfather. It doesn't seem to have been mocking. Well, maybe a little. But it's a heck of a lot more respectful than sweet summer child, right? (laughs) When an old wise person gives you a title like that, I think it's pretty meaningful. It says something. Jojen represents wisdom, and he's ironically a dreamer, but very grounded and rational despite that. It would not be a good thing if Bran stopped listening to him or forgot his lessons or the lessons he will learn later. Quote, You are the winged wolf, and there is no saying how far and high you might fly if you had someone to teach you. How can I help you master a gift I do not understand? We remember the first men in the neck and the children of the forest who were their friends. But so much is forgotten, and so much we never knew. Enough is remembered to get on the right track, though, or at least head in the right direction. They know they need to go beyond the wall. This is a sentiment echoed somewhat by Howland Reed. Recall in A Clash of Kings, we discussed that Howland specifically sent Jojen to Bran after hearing about his son's dreams. From our limited perspective, Howland seems to know Bran needs a mystical education, for lack of a better term. But it's so daunting. Take a look at the map when you get a chance. The neck to Winterfell is a good distance, pretty far. Winterfell to, well, we don't 
know exactly where Blood Raven's Cave is, but it's farther north than Craster's Keep, which is on most maps, so you can get an idea. The total distance isn't that disparate comparing the two journeys, but the map shows that the King's Road runs all the way up to the neck directly to Winterfell. So Mira says the road was hard, but it was a road, and they were on horseback. This time they have no horses, no path, and they don't even know exactly where they're going. And worst of all, they're being hunted on top of all that. We get a mention of the so-called tomb swords, which is just a cool phrase. The, the three swords taken from the crypts, that, that is, the ones that were sitting on the laps of long-dead Stark kings. Bran takes his uncles, as in Ned's brother, Brandon. He probably could have taken one at random, and there's a good chance he would have ended up with a Brandon. But <laughs> it's still poignant that he's following in the footsteps of his namesake and giving a faint hint that he carries the blood of all the Starks before him and so much more. He's a representative of his own dynasty, in a sense. Mira takes Lord Rickard's sword, and this makes sense, too, because it's the two most recent, right? The two most, the swords that are the least old that have been placed down there. Eddard's tomb is incomplete, so it doesn't have a sword. Hodor takes an older, large one, and we don't know which one it is. Theon and Lady Dustin observe the missing swords later in A Dance with Dragons, and it gives them a bit of an ominous feeling, and it should. It seems we will get some dead rising in those crypts, perhaps starting with the most recently dead, especially if the lack of swords keeping them in their crypts actually makes a difference. Also, very peculiarly, Bran, as Summer, thinks of Ghost as apart from their family somewhat. It comes when he feels sadness over Lady, which, yeah, we're with you there. He thinks, four now, not five. Four and one more, the white who has no voice. So that's pretty interesting because... Why is the why is Ghost considered separate? Obviously, we know metaphorically John is not truly their brother, but Ghost, why isn't Ghost part of the wolf? Like, wasn't he born in the same litter uh, as the others? This sort of indicates no, but I wouldn't take it literally, but it's still definitely peculiar. Wolves just really hate albinos. <laughs> <laughs> Wolves are racist. <laughs> Then he thinks something even more peculiar, a thought that seems to be maybe of the afterlife or the crypts of Winterfell or the graveyard that Lady was buried in nearby. These woods belong to them. The snowy slopes and stony hills, the great green pines and the golden leaf oaks, the rushing streams and blue lakes fringed with fingers of white frost. But his sister had left the wilds to walk in the halls of Man Rock where other hunters ruled, and once within those halls, it was hard to find the path back out. So I think the, the best... wolf prince remembered. Excuse me, Aziz. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I started before you were finished. <laughs> it may be referring to Sansa heading to King's Landing, the, the halls of Manrock, meaning King's Landing, the castles and, and places where other hunters ruled, it says. So, and of course, that's a very foreign element to a wolf brain. Some thoughts from Joe. Um, uh, this Bran arc marks a huge deviation from what we've experienced so far. Of course, Bran was our opening and closer in uh, opener in Game of Thrones, closer in Clash of Kings. He had more chapters than Arya or Sansa early on. He's our key witness to everything in Winterfell and then all these other northern politics. And now he's it's something entirely different. He just he only has the four chapters. He's the not nearly the first character to get their fir, uh, their first POV. He's almost the last. Sam is really the last, but 
And his final chapter is going to come way before the end of the book, unlike prior books. So it's pretty interesting to see the, the change in his presentation. But a lot of that is just the change in his location. The chapter ends with Bran setting down to make a choice about his future, which is also a bit of a theme for these early chapters. We see a couple other characters making choices, and it's, it's interesting the choice they're making. They're given some agency, but on, in another sense, there really isn't that many choices. Uh, you might recall from the previous two books, George places certain characters next to each other, especially the important ones like John and Danny back, back to back as far as chapters go. We have an early example of that here with that's a little bit hidden based on our own separation because Danny was the last chapter last week. Bran is the first one this week. And Danny also was making choices about her future. Jorah presenting her with the idea of going to Slaver's Bay and she decides to do that. Uh, super chat from Mara Lee. Love this Valerie Rita series. Thank you, Aziz and Ashea. Love all the information and the discussions around all the chapters of each of the books discussed. Yeah, we are having a blast too. It is super fun. And we have even more fun because I know that you guys are having fun. You, y'all telling us that you're having a great time is very much motivating to us. It fil- puts the wind in our sails and we keep going. Super chat also from River Missoula, 777. Happy Lunar New Year. Love History of Westeros and all they do. Well, we love you too. Thank you. Question from patron Anthony Gonzalez regarding Rob's POV. This comes up every once in a while because we know George uh, somewhat laments not sticking a few Rob chapters in there. And this would be an interesting, this is an interesting time to consider that. Also, it's interesting to consider during Arya's chapter. We'll bring that up again when that comes up. He wants to know, do we think any of Rob's men or women, in, in, especially in Mormont's case, would have, uh, in terms of women, would have hinted or told Rob that Roos is shady? In other words, did anyone else would anyone else have suggested the possibility that Roos was shady and maybe should not have been trusted? Did that ever come up? Or was he just that good at hiding his uh, shadiness? Or, by the same token, Ramsey Snow, or rumors about him. Of course, Ramsey was kind of new on the scene, so to speak. Roos only got him from his mother maybe two years before the start of the books. But that doesn't, but clearly Lady Hornwood had heard some things. I do think that would have come up. I think that's a, a path George would have taken, maybe drop more hints about who Roos was. Maybe there would have been a little more uh, groundwork. It probably would have been the subtle kind that a lot of us would have missed the first time through. And then the second time through, we would have been like, oh, yeah, there it is. Um, yeah, I think, I think Roos would have been presented a little differently. There would have been a little more buildup to him. Nina points out the sadness that is Brand still thinking he can be a knight. He's still thinking about that even in this chapter and it's probably willful on his part. He also willfully holds on to the hope that the three-eyed crow will fix his legs, which is part of why he still thinks he can be a knight. Yeah, that's, that's pretty sad. But it's part of that willful stubbornness. He's nine years old and it's, he's still very much distracted by what's in front of him, what he is. And it's very hard for him to think about these other grand magical things going on. It's hard for him to perceive them. And it's hard for us to perceive how a nine-year-old in his place would perceive them. And it's also a big challenge for George to write. <laughs> it's maybe one of the reasons why the brand chapters are becoming fewer and far between is they're just so hard for him to write. Tree Girl points out what a smooth and loving move it is for Mira to actually give Brand that choice of where to go. As I said, there's really only one good choice, even though it doesn't seem like a good choice. But Mira very wisely and cleverly makes it, give, gives Bran the idea that he's got this choice. 
it's interesting if he had gone somewhere else. I mean, his his decision comes down to the, his broken legs. He thinks, well, none of these other locations have a chance of fixing my legs, which neither does Bloodraven, but he's still clinging to that idea. And I want to remind everyone that the name Brand the Broken is never said aloud. It is, well, it is on TV. But in the books, it's only said in his head. He calls himself that. It's his own self-image and self-esteem that are majorly uh, impacted by this. And this, in turn, is a filter for how he views his own powers and his future in, in that sense. Great catch here by Noga Frankel with regard to Bran not thinking how his apparent death and disappearance will impact his mother and the rest of his family when they find out. He thinks of his Wolfpack family, as we talked about, while in summer, but his actual family, while in his own mind, it's one of the things children struggle with, perspective, which is also ominous considering, again, just how much power Bran will wield. He's really got to learn perspective or, well, that power could end up being in the wrong hands. Archmaester Rennie says, Bran staying in summer so much may give a hint to what John will be feeling if he lives on in Ghost and has the chance to return to his own body. He may retain a lot of that wolfishness. I definitely agree with that. The wolfish John has had a lot of support in the fandom for many years. Well, since 2011 when John was killed. <laughs> and the idea that he would live on in Ghost and acquire some of Ghost's personality, so to speak, his wolfishness. And also we wonder, it brings up another question, like how hard is it to control your wolfishness or your wolf when you're dead? In other words, it's the kind of thing that was touched on in Veramir's prologue POV chapter, but he doesn't, we don't really get this part of it. We don't get Veramir after he's moved on. We see him passing his second life and, and joining the wolves, but the chapter basically ends once that phase of his afterlife begins. We don't see an extended period of time with him engaging in second life. He talks about it, and then we see it begin, but we don't actually see what it's like. I like that chapter a lot. I, I really enjoy thinking about the power angles to Brand's future because he's going to wield so much power, so much more than anyone has ever wielded, I believe, in that we, at least as characters that we have a name for. I mean, no one ever, assuming he is king at the end, there's no one that's got this much political power and that much like mystical power at the same time. Euron's aiming for it himself. <laughs> and Danny arguably is close with dragons being extremely powerful, but she may never sit the Iron Throne in a period of peace. So we'll see. Anyway, time to move on. Davos 2. The gang meets Edric Storm, a.k.a. the one where Davos goes to jail. Well, it's not the one where Davos goes to jail because he's going to go to jail again. It won't, it's the life of a, well, he's not a smuggler anymore. That's weird. He spends more time in jail as a, as a follower of Stannis than he did as an actual criminal smuggler. Hmm. Well, isn't that interesting? The opening quote is such. When he came up on deck, the long point of Driftmark was dwindling behind them while Dragonstone rose from the sea ahead. Cool to see that they passed by the seat of House Valerian there. Fun to remember, despite Salador's way of talking in his portrayal on TV, that he's got similar ancestry to the Valerians. Minus the Targaryen marriages, that is, but he does have a silver beard and, and that look. I don't recall what his eye color is. I don't think it's purple, but it's probably 
you know, some interesting color that was common enough in, amongst the uh, Valerian households. Salador is Lysine, and Lys, Lys, however you say it, Lys sounds better. Lys sounds like, you know, those creatures that get you. Yeah, I don't think you want to say Lys. Especially because Lys is a place of pleasure, and Lys doesn't sound very pleasurable. (laughs) And not only was it a pleasurable place, that's underselling it. It was a paradise for dragon lords and other Valyrian elite back in older times, thus more so than the other free cities, with the possible exception of Volantis. There are lots of descendants of the old blood. A lot of them, you know, maybe from the quote-unquote wrong side of the pillow. Nonetheless, that blood is there. Uh, he, he also has, in addition to the Valyrian look, uh, he also has Illyrio's chair and some of his other stuff, which he grabbed in an act of piracy that he claims is legitimate given his new rank of Lord of Blackwater Bay assigned to him by Hand of the King, Alistair Florent. That job will obviously soon pass to Davos, but neither of those two will keep their titles very long. In fact, Alistair, of course, is going to die and Salvador San is eventually going to leave Stannis and not be Lord of Blackwater Bay anymore, I suppose. It's a minor parallel to seeing, to see, rather, Sala taking Illyria's stuff just as Danny is doing the same uh, on her way to Slaver's Bay. It's kind of funny. And so is Sala, another character we're supposed to dislike based on his profession, but he's just charming and he's very human in this chapter. He, he seems to have legitimate care for Davos and it's genuine. It's, it's warming. And even little things like he, he's, he, I mislike the sound of that cough. It's just, you like to see it. In the last episode, we spoke a lot about the loss of Davos's finger bones, especially how it reflects and predicts what's coming for him and his relationship with Stannis. We talked about how Stannis' justification for maiming Davos wasn't great. It wasn't bad necessarily, but not great. And here in this chapter, we get not one, but two other characters agreeing with that sentiment, meaning that cutting his fingers off was not the right move. Salador kind of jokes about it, says, well, I wouldn't cut your fingers off. I'll make, you can work for me as a smuggler and you can keep your fingers. But Edric Storm, he says it sincerely. He's like, you shouldn't have done that. It's certainly one of the more fascinating and discussable parts of Davos and Stannis' relationship, which is, well, and Stannis' brand of justice, which is part of their relationship, part of why Davos is fond of Stannis and, and so loyal to him. But it would be unjust to discuss Stannis and justice without bringing up perhaps Stannis's least just act, rather his least just intended act, which is the burning of just now mentioned Edric Storm. Davos is so loyal, he is willing to risk death to keep Stannis from dishonor. Just to prevent Stannis from doing a dishonorable thing, he's willing to risk his life. That's Well, that's Davos's brand of loyalty, which I find more impressive and compelling than Stannis's justice. It's also a brutal bit of synchronicity that Davos thinks Mel is misleading Stannis by saying he's an instrument of the gods, while Davos actually believes the god saved his poor life just so he could kill Melisandre. He's missing the irony here. Davos, don't you think Stannis is an instrument of the gods? No, you don't, and I don't either. So why do you think you are? (laughs) Yeah, oh well. Very important to remember the order of things here. Davos doesn't know about the plan to burn Edric Storm yet. So with that in mind, if he had that piece of information, it would be a much better reason to go after Melisandre. But right now, the reasons he has to go after Melisandre are pretty sketchy. They're they're there, sort of, but they're not... mm, 
it's more about revenge at this point. He he's convinced it's something else, but it's misplaced blame. He's just misguided, as Salador says. Salador's son is a pirate, but his disappointment in Davos's suicide mission is a. There's nothing dishonest about that. He's legitimately concerned. So more on that later when we actually get to the burning of uh, Edric and the actual attempted murder on Melisandre. But we need to start talking about it now. This is our setup to Edric. And when you meet him on your first read, you have no idea what that he's going to later be sacrificed. That's kind of out, out there. Like, whoa, where did this come from? Isn't Edric Storm great, though? You shouldn't get in my way when I'm running. I like this kid. <laughs> he, he already has a sense of duty. You get these little character moments with him where he says he's playing this game with Shireen, Monsters and Maidens, because she enjoys it. He doesn't like it, but he's playing it with her because she likes it. And hey, that's pretty cool. But it definitely isn't his duty to be burned as a sacrifice. Being a good cousin to, to Shireen, that he sees that as a duty, but no one's duty to get burned. That's not, that's not right. Isn't it wild, though? And I mean wild in the worst possible way to realize that these two kids, Edric and Shireen, running around playing together, are both going to be threatened with being burned at the stake? What the hell is that? Imagine learning that at this point in the story. Like, yeah, these two kids, aren't they cute? Yeah, they're both going to, someone's going to try to burn them both and, and succeed in one case, probably. Physically, he's another example of the seed is strong, right? Davos knows exactly who he is when he sees him because of his look. It's unmistakable. Not unlike how Brienne will think she's seeing Renly when she meets Gendry for the first time. Looking like Renly also makes Davos uneasy. And that turns out to be pressured enough given, again, the attempt to burn Edric because, you know, murdering another of your kin, Stannis, stop that. <laughs> yeah. In case it wasn't clear, Gendry and Edric are the same character on TV. They should have called him Gendrick, but no. We mentioned at the start of Valerie Regis that we're rereading for several reasons, and the TV show's ending is, of course, a major one, but not nearly the only uh, of course, we shall not forget that this is our first time rereading A Song of Ice and Fire since Fire and Blood also. Now, here's a passage I hadn't thought about in a long time, and you can probably see why this would apply to thinking about Fire and Blood. Quote. He leaned forward and lowered his voice. Queer talking, I have heard, of hungry fires within the mountain and how Stannis and the Red Woman go down together to watch the flames. There are shafts, they say, and secret stairs down into the mountain's heart into hot places where only she may walk unburned. Yeah, this is different because we, Stannis is clearly leaning more into what Melisandre is saying. She's, after he lost and she wasn't present for his loss, he's sad and feeling defeated and she is the one to pick him back up. Uh, but using all of her ideas are a big part of what's propping him back up. Now, as far as this place, this volcanic area in the mountain's heart, so to speak, this is really neat, right? You could see dragon eggs placed in some of these places. Dragon eggs and dragons love that heat. They love to, well, they just love that heat. There's nothing simple and nothing complicated about it. Targaryens even, you wonder if some of them would go in there because they have that mild heat resistance. I'm not talking about Danny not burning to the fire or when she set on fire. I'm talking about just Targaryens being a little bit more comfortable with, with raised temperatures. Now, if these rumors of Stannis and Mel walking around in the mountain's heart are true, well, 
then I really want to know more about these tunnels. What is up with that? That's pretty cool. It makes sense. The Targaryens would have these things built, building tunnels inside a mountain. It's a good way to expand a castle without building from scratch. You know, you've kind of already got part of the work done. Um, even if they aren't as volcanic as these rumors make it sound like, it's still fascinating and interesting. And I really hope we get a look at them either maybe later when Danny goes to Dragonstone or maybe uh, Melisandre will think of them in her uh, POV. So, yeah, Nina suggests this is where Aegon the Conqueror went to be alone after receiving the infamous Dornis letter, the one that angered him so much, the one that came right after Rhaenys and Meraxes were shot down in Dorne. And this resulted in him ending that war, the letter's contents. It seems likely that he went to this place to be alone. If not for this, then for other things. Probably quite a few important decisions were pondered here by Targaryen kings and queens. Speaking of important decisions, Nina also suggests in, in this, some specifics to what kind of things Mel is, is showing Stannis down below the earth. It might relate to convincing him to wake dragons from stone. After all, this is dragon stone. <laughs> showing him how much power he would gain by waking dragons from stone, convincing him of what this could do for him. It's, a, it's fairly pragmatic, even though it's so dark and mysterious and mystical. But of course, it means sacrificing Edric Storm. According to Melisandre, anyway, we have very good reason to believe she's wrong about that and several other things. Not to mention someone already woke dragons from stone in the form of Daenerys Targaryen. Stannis will later speak of seeing things in the flames too. I don't think he mentions these so-called secret places. I think he just mentions things that he saw in the flames without mentioning where those flames happen to be. But we'll be on the lookout for that though, just in case, or, or maybe it'll come later. Maybe it'll come in the winds of winter. Just like Catelyn, Davos has nightmares of the shadow baby he saw. Also, the two of them are among the biggest believers in the seven. Wonder if that's a meant to be uh, part of their belief there and why it uh, gives them nightmares because it's something outside of their own belief system and because they're both people who pray and how it guides their thinking and how they've never maybe seen real evidence of the seven, but then they see this, that might shake your faith a little bit to see blood magic working, but to have never witnessed anything done by the seven. Of course, in Davos's case, he thinks his own life was saved by them, so he does feel like perhaps... He's a product of a miracle. So maybe it's not quite the same for him. But he's got time to ponder that more. More tangible losses are felt as well. We're talking about faith, but there's just deep sadness as Davos yells out a bunch of names to the guard as a way of proving he is who he says he is. And they all seem to be dead, though. Davos recalls these personal details about some of these men to twist the knife in the reader a little more to humanize these dead guards. Of course, the chapter ends with Davos captured because Melisandre sees his attempt to come for her. We talked about this in the Crescent chapter. Let's quote it again. It's the, it's the her one chapter reveals this. Danger to her own person was the first thing she had learned to see back when she was still half a child, a slave girl bound for life to the Great Temple, Great Red Temple. Mm -hmm. It was still the first thing she looked for whenever she gazed into a fire. So again, that's how she knew about Crescent. So of course, she's going to know about this one. While on the way to kill Melisandre, though, he encounters the other person in the vicinity capable of prophecy. When the fool saw Davos, he jerked to a sudden halt, 
the bells on his antlered tin helmet going tingling, tingling. Hopping from one foot to the other, he sang, fool's blood, king's blood, blood on the maiden's thigh, but chains for the guests and chains for the bridegroom. I, I, I. Shireen almost caught him then, but at the last instant, he hopped over a patch of bracken and vanished among the trees. The princess was right behind him. The sight of them made Davos smile. Yeah, but none of no reader smiles when when seeing that. Not a rereader, anyway. It's it, Davos' smile is disarming. The first time reader, you're like, "Oh, isn't that nice? Children at play." But Patchface has just delivered a whopper. Like I said, a first time reader doesn't understand the significance of this, but upon close examination, it is very clearly about the red wedding. Let's let's go through it real quick. Fool's blood. That's a diversion because he's a fool. So you can, you kind of think maybe is he talking about himself? But no, he's talking about, or rather, let me back up. A reader might also think of Butterbumps, the fool we just met. He's like, well, that's another fool that was just introduced. But that's not the case. It's Jingle Bell, whom Cat slays in revenge near the end of the Red Wedding, a.k.a. poor little Aegon. King's blood, of course, that is Rob himself. Blood on the maiden's thigh should be referring to the fact that Jane Westerling is being fed tea to ensure she has no pregnancies from Rob. Her monthly cycle will continue, in other words, thus blood on her thighs. Chains for the guest and change for the bridegroom is also easy enough to understand when you're on the right track. Quite a few of the Northern Lords, like the Great John, are locked up as hostages, certainly including Edmure Tully himself, who is the bridegroom. In addition to the passages under Dragonstone, I'd forgotten about this little note. Quote, Aegon's garden had a pleasant, piney smell to it, and tall, dark trees rose on every side. There were wild roses as well, and towering thorny hedges, and a boggy spot where cranberries grew. So first, this is yet more evidence of rich people having gardens that include things that don't occur naturally in the area, things that couldn't grow naturally. A boggy spot where cranberries grow on a volcanic island, right next to pine trees, right next to wild roses. It wouldn't be weird to see a lemon tree right there either. Another random note here, Salador says two ships from the Stannis' fleet. Now, Davos is asking in hope that one of the ships that contained one of his sons was still out there, but that's not the case, of course. Ragged Jenna and Laughing Lord are still playing pirate on the Blackwater, according to Salah. Now, we don't get any mention of them again. My best guess is that they actually escaped the river. At first, they stayed on the river because of the chain. The chain blocked the bay. They couldn't leave, so they fled the other direction. But eventually, that chain's going to come down, and it's not like the Lannisters are going to constantly be patrolling for these two ships. Where would they go from there? Who knows? The Stepstones? I don't know. Maybe they'll show up with Orane Waters. Who knows? Joe points out how interesting and kind of ironic it is that Davos chapters were few and far between back in Clash, but now that they're done with their attempt to take King's Landing and have no men left. Now we get more of them. (laughs) Kind of neat. It it just seems like Stannis is somehow busier when after he's lost, even though he's kind of sitting around moping a lot. Here's another little bit we'll cover. Here's a quote to kick us off. King Renly's shade was seen as well, the captain said, slaying right and left as he led the Lion Lord's van. It said his green armor took a ghostly glow from the wildfire and his antlers ran with golden flames. Renly's shade. Davos wondered if his sons would return as shades as well. He had seen too many queer things on the sea to say that ghosts did not exist. So yeah, that's particularly meaningful to Davos because Davos, well, he's seen Melisandre's uh, work 
And so he's literally seen shades. And so this, the, this idea is a lot more, is a lot less rumory to him and a lot more possible and, and not, he's more likely to consider the supernatural here than most because he's witnessed it where as, as we know, it is, isn't really a shade, but to Davos, that seems real enough. The other side to uh, Davos being welcomed back by something he finds familiar is he's being tempted away from his purpose by Salador offering him to be a smuggler again to work for him. And he's not wrong. I mean, as, as bad as it would be to go be pirate again, it's, he's not wrong that Stannis seems to be a lost cause. And even when Stannis gets going again, I still feel like he's still kind of a lost cause. It's just a, he has a resurgence, but ultimately he's still going to fail. And well, Salah also makes a great point about Davos's wife. He's like, look, man, you got a second lease on life and you're just going to throw that away without even, you still have two sons, three sons rather, and, and a wife. Go talk to them, you know, hang out with them. Don't just throw your life away. It's, it's wild. And it is nice that Davos discovers that Devin survived. It's, it's understandable that he was afraid to ask. He's also hurt to find out how many people bent the knee to Joffrey. Again, highlighting the few who didn't, like Davos himself, who never even considers changing sides. He doesn't, not only does he not consider going smuggler again, but changing sides, it seems like it doesn't even cross his mind. Although I do think it will happen later, much later. Stan is turning the other cheek to the Florence meaning letting them burn people and giving him giving them reign to rule in his place is well it's a link to the revelation uh, the, the revelation that Melisandre has been burning people a uh, kind of on her own along with Selyse. Selyse is endorsing it and her obviously being queen gives her a lot of authority as well. So this is really important to Stannis. It's a really it's bad. It's very bad. It's a big knock against him. His whole Shtick, his whole conceit is justice and duty about sticking to it no matter what. But here he is feeling sorry for himself, feeling depressed, and he ceases to be dealing out justice. He's, he's letting other people burn people in his name. He's not dealing with his people. He's letting them run amok. And he's going to start considering burning an innocent child. This is not justice by any means. It's, it's the most, as Joe puts it, it's the most anti-Stannis idea ever. And Davos's mission, because he's so loyal, is not to say, oh, this isn't the man I thought he was. His mission is to get Stannis to be back into the man he was. He restore Stannis to that sense of justice and duty that he highlighted before. What Davos might not be aware of yet, at least in not so many words, is that he needs to be by Stannis' side to counterbalance Melisandre's influence. Again, even though he wants to kill Melisandre, he doesn't really know how deep this all runs. He doesn't know about the plan to wake dragons from stone yet. He doesn't have any idea about the sacrifice. Stannis' views on Melisandre were ambiguous during Clash of Kings, but this is different. Like, this Stannis is getting close to Melisandre. He's closer to her than she was, than he was. He understands that he made a mistake not bringing her, and she is leaning into that majorly, saying, look, you, you need to rely on me. You need to listen to me this time. And He's a guy that responds to evidence and the evidence is that he lost and he didn't have her with and she's got real power. So it's, it's, it's definitely the angel on one shoulder, devil on the other. 
But Davos doesn't know that's what he is yet. And he doesn't know fully what she's all about. This kind of raises an older question. What did Melisandre come to Westeros for? Did she come for Dragonstone? Did she come for Stannis? Did she come for Daenerys, but misinterpret it as Stannis? Did she come for Jon? This is, this is tough. We're, we can be almost certain she's misinterpreted her visions. It's a bit of a recurring theme with her. But it definitely begs the question of what she really saw. And maybe that's another thing we can look forward to in future chapters from her. The fires of the world, the volcanoes on Dragonstone. You wonder if those flames provide deeper, stronger visions, whether they're more likely to provide visions or if it's just, oh no, it's just hotter in there. <laughs> we can't really blame Salador for getting mad at Davos based on what we said before. I mean, he realizes that if, if anyone's going to tell Davos's wife what happened, it's going to have to be him. He's like, yeah, he actually miraculously survived the battle. But before going to talk to you, he threw his life away trying to assassinate Melisandre. <laughs> like, what? And Davos is so stuck on doing it now because... If he doesn't do it now, he's going to lose his resolve. No, Salador is like, it's not your resolve you're going to lose. It's you're going to realize how dumb this is. <laughs> realize how misguided this is. It's not your resolve that you need to worry about. It's your wisdom. Joe points out something great I didn't catch about Edric Storm, which is that he seems to display the best traits of all three of the Baratheon brothers. Like he's the perfect mix of copper, steel, and iron. Now, of course, we don't know this for sure. We only see him a little bit, but he does leave that impression where he has the look. He's a little bit arrogant, but dutiful to his sister, to his cousin. And he weighs in on the justice of Stannis's cutting off uh, Davos's fingers and says it wasn't, wasn't just. So he, he weighs in on justice. He weighs in on bravery. He weighs in on duty. And he has the look. And, uh, has a commanding presence. He tells Davos, you know, don't, you know, shouldn't be there when you shouldn't get in my way when I'm running. And yeah, he's probably more, a little bit more like Robert than the others. He's certainly the one he wants to be like. He, he adores Robert and Robert's memory, but yeah, there's, but there's little bits of, of Dav of Stannis and Renly in there as well. And probably the good parts. So yeah, Edric might be pretty awesome if we get a chance to see him grow up, which raises another question. The nature of a song of ice and fire doesn't, really lend us thinking about what's going to happen, say, eight to ten years later. But there is a time in, in A Song of Ice and Fire lore when we would have been doing a five-year jump and Edric Storm, the plan for him may have been much different when he would have been, I suppose, 17 after a five-year gap. I believe he's 12 now. Maybe the chat chatters will correct me if I'm wrong. I didn't look that one up. And close enough, if not. And uh, so that's really interesting. You wonder what uh, the plans for Edric were before the uh, five-year gap uh, changed. And still, I wonder, because he's just out there. He's hanging out in, uh, in Essos, and he might be in the picture when it's time to make a new Lord of Storm's End. The show gave us Gendry, but that might not be how it goes in the books. It might be Edric. Nina Friel and Scott Wartman are the first to point to Rosalind Frey being deflowered by Edmure while the guests are slain. Yeah, okay, that's another uh, part of the jingle bell, or part of uh, Patchface's rhyme there. Definitely, definitely. 
A lot of other people <laughs> in the chat apparently agreed with that. Shannon0893, Noga Frankel, Dom T, Aaron M, River Missoula, Violent Messiah666. Yeah, you guys were all on top of that. All rereaders recognize the significance of Patchface's line there. It's such a change from first time through the second time through. Great job, y'all. Lady Leaf Underhill says, I too thought about that blood on the maiden's thigh, though. By the way, not everyone bleeds first time. Okay, good catch there. Uh, Nina has looked up Edric's birth. He was born in 287, so he should be about 12. He may not have had his birthday yet. He might still be 11, but yeah, about, about right there. Lots of love around our social media discussion posts with regard to Sal, Salah and Davos. People really loved the genuine friendship there in a story that has a lot of darkness and death and brutality and conflict. It's nice to have these moments. We actually have another one in Arya's chapter with some of that stuff going on with um, Hot Pie being happy and, and having a little moment there. Flick had a discussion on Dragonstone as well. People really curious about the fires and questions about how the dragons prefer it. Well, for more information on the dragons and all that, I recommend, I guess this is the second time in a couple of weeks I recommended this, our Fire and Blood episode on dragons. There's a lot of uh, that dragon lore in there. We'll be talking a little more about it during our Dance of the Dragons coverage with Radio Westeros. But uh, one thought that I hadn't considered is people wondered if there's any chance Dragonstone has its own little miniature doom during the series. Well, I guess that's possible. It would be hard. It's hard for me to imagine what would trigger such a thing. But who knows? Uh, I wonder if it will just be a place they mine dragon glass like in the show. But there's a lot more potential for, for that something for that story to be expanded on for it not just to be simple kind of mining. And well, it wasn't that simple. We got that cool cave scene. But uh, maybe we'll get something like that in the books. That'd be really cool. These, these, you, get, you get sort of a familiar idea with these strange hidden caves under the volcano. It's at least somewhat related. John Hagee and Scott Wartman point out how similar Davos' naming of the dead guards is to how no one at Winterfell would recognize Arya. And again, I'm bringing up Arya too here. We get a similar-ish moment who, thankfully, Harwin does recognize her, but only after being reminded. Nina catches a logistical point here that comes up later. The casual mention that Queen Selyse and Stannis' hand, Alistair Florin, have been using Stannis' royal seal without his consent. That, we, we briefly touched on that, but it's going to come to a head shortly, I think even in Davos' next chapter, when Alistair tries to negotiate a peace deal with the Lannisters, also without consent. And for that, he burns. Whitney Cayley Stanfield points out Edric Storm is proud of the hammer his father Robert sent to him. But as we know from back in the Game of Thrones, Robert probably had nothing to do with it. It was almost certainly Varys making and choosing that gift and then telling Robert what he sent. It's like, what did I send him this year? A Warhammer. Yeah, ooh, that's a good gift. Good job, Varys. <laughs> Robert would definitely approve of a son of his being given a Warhammer. Like, yeah. That's one he could have actually thought of himself, but he didn't. Trigger Girl with a guest that I really like here. She wonders if Davos was indeed meant to die, meaning by George R. R. Martin, but he changed his mind with these chapters. Thus, it's very meta for Davos to wonder what his purpose is. It's like, why did the gods bring me back to life? What purpose what is it? It's not the gods that brought you back, not the seven, it's the one, meaning George R. R. Martin. That's whose instrument you truly are, Davos. <laughs> so it's, it is kind of funny for a character to wonder, hey, author, what are you, you going to do with me? It may be that Davos's purpose was not to kill Melisandre, but to save Edric, which he does do. Interestingly, he doesn't consider that. Arguably, that's more the kind of thing that a, a merciful deity would, would do. 
But sadly, he may very much regret not killing her later if she does, in fact, burn Shireen. Though if that's Stannis' decision, then, well, we'll have to wait and see. But there's no chance he takes it well, even if it's Stannis' call. That's not going to uh, excuse it. We, we see Davos excuse Stannis quite a bit, but I don't think he'll excuse that. Tregal also suggests the bloody future Melsies and Patchface is related to all this. This is another good theory I like a lot. Patchface follows Shireen everywhere, and as we know, Melisandre has these visions about him that lead us to think he's something's going to happen. Blood, he's got blood on his lips, skulls around his head. Maybe he goes berserk when Shireen is burned. It's 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 might be like where we maybe we're thinking about this backwards, like he's just darkness waiting to happen, but maybe he's just gonna get mad at an evil act and will go after the people who did it. So maybe Melisandre should be worried because she will burn Patchface and Patchface will come for her. Well, if that's the case, then I won't be able to say I blame Patchface. And that is it for Davos 2. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's do Jamie 2. Jamie, the one where Jamie remembers Kingslaying, aka the gang avoids an ambush. Let's go right to the first line. Jamie was the first to spy the inn. Yeah, not a whole lot to say about that first line. A little underwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just like, oh, Jamie's got the best eyesight in the group. I don't know. I don't have much to say about that. Yeah. The Tyrion's second chapter separates Jamie's second and Arya's second. They take the latter two at the same location. In other words, Arya and Jamie's chapters, two chapters apart. You don't see that very often. Two chapters so close together in the same spot. Arya and her friends will be taken by the Brotherhood to this very spot. And we'll see some of these same things from a different perspective. Sir Cleos has also been here before since he's been going back and forth between King's Landing a lot. He's getting pretty familiar with the trek. We know this is the inn of the kneeling man. Well, because they say so almost right away. Notable chunk of history is dropped right at the start of this in relation to this. The kneeling man is none other than the last king of the north, Torin Stark. He bent the knee to Aegon the Conqueror about 300 years prior to this chapter. As we find out in Arya's chapter, the innkeeper is very much in league with the Brotherhood, and he tries to send them into an ambush. Arya and her gang walk into the ambush instead, coming from the other direction. Brienne and Jamie's cynicism blend here nicely. Possibly for different reasons, they arrive at the same conclusion, that the innkeeper is leading them into this ambush. Jamie realizes it because the innkeeper and his story are sketchy. I love how George R. R. Martin puts it, quote, There's far too much horse shit around here for my taste. <laughs> I would hate to step in it. <laughs> he gave the wench a sharp look, wondering if she was bright enough to take his meaning. So he means the p- colloquial, like, horse shit bullshit, like, this is, this is all nonsense. He, he, he spies the trap and says, let's not step directly in the trap. But there's literal meaning to this as well, which is that there's actually lots of horse droppings in the stable and they're fresh. So lots of horses have been coming and going, which implies something other than what's being stated. In fact, it's evidence of this ambush. She may not have caught his meaning with that particular phrase, 
meaning Brienne, but she does get it nonetheless, meaning she also suspects this trap. She seems to notice it because, well, she just doesn't suspect random kindness. She's always suspicious and wary because it's burned her before, big time. She points out the innkeeper was far too interested in their route, and indeed that was at odds with him taking an interest in so little else about them. It's the one thing he seemed to care about, and that was telling. So Brienne, suspicious for good reason, but also clever enough to figure out the specifics. This is much more prominent on reread because we know why Brienne, despite being naive about so many other things, because she's young and so often excluded, is not quick to trust. She's not gullible. That's the thing. Naive is not gullible. We see that her constant suspicion of Jamie is not limited to Jamie. She's suspicious of almost everyone. Sir Cleos, despite being the one familiar with this route, is the least suspicious here. So this probably would have been his last trip where he truly leading it. Looks like he would have walked right into this BWB ambush. They might not have killed him. I don't think they would have killed him. There's no Red Wedding yet. The, the Brotherhood isn't gone dark. They haven't started murdering people uh, as they will later. So Jamie and Brienne give their gold and their skiff for horses. And in Aria 2, they flat out state that they were planning on stealing the horses back. <laughs> so these horses weren't actually meant to be given away. Tom and Lem and Angai were supposed to take them back from Jamie and Brienne and Cleos. Jamie's disdain for archers comes up repeatedly in these early chapters of his, and his jawing with the boy holding the crossbow is part of that. He even tries to talk the kid out of making it his weapon of choice. Tell He's like, hey, you learn a spear or a maul instead. He's earnest when he says this, despite his frequent use of sarcasm. But I think he's wrong. More on that in a minute. It's funny to think about... Would you rather, would you rather be an archer or a swords person? Me? Probably an archer. Yeah, I stay far away from, from all the, the heat of battle, I think. Yeah. <laughs> And what's funny is Jamie, all this talking about archers and, and d- disdain for them, he, he almost crossed paths with Angai the archer. And that may not have gone well, given how like Jamie likes to antagonize people. <laughs> and Angai's like, if I see a man on a lot whose eyes I don't like, I shoot him in the eyes. And later the innkeep will, will say that they didn't like the look in Jamie's eyes. <laughs> so a little, uh, a little minor micro synchronicity there. But even Jamie would have to admit that Angai is awfully impressive. Like, that's one archer that you don't, (laughs) you can't really denigrate. In Tyrion 1, we discussed how being denied knighthood gave him a rare thing in common with Brienne. And here, Jamie draws a comparison between them as well. Quote, Brienne squinted at him suspiciously. No, I was my father's only child. Jamie chuckled. Son, you meant to say, does he think of you as a son? You make a queer sort of daughter, to be sure. Wordless, she turned away from him, her knuckles tight on her sword hilt. What a wretched creature this one is. She reminded him of Tyrion in some queer way, though at first blush, two people could scarcely be any more dissimilar. Perhaps it was that thought of his brother that made him say, I did not intend to give offense, Brienne. Forgive me. This is also another reminder that Jamie is one of the few who have a tender spot for Tyrion. Eventually, he'll be one of the few that have a tender spot for Brienne and maybe vice versa as well. And that's interesting because basically this is something that very humanizes Jamie, his, his relationship with Tyrion. And it comes up a lot. 
But other speaking of humanizing Jamie, his backstory. There's a lot of it here. Uh, it's is, is we get more of his detail with Ares. That story continues. It takes several chapters for us to get all the Ares backstory. His investiture in the Kingsguard and Cersei are very prominent here, though. In quite a what if, Jamie was set to be married to Lysa Tully. He says the white cloak soiled him, but it also saved him from marrying her. Lysa might have turned out a lot different under such circumstances, but Jamie only had eyes for Cersei then. Any marriage was a big no. He did not want to get married. But we also see how little he was prepared to do about it. Like most noble children, especially faced with a father like Tywin, he was going to do what he was told. Cersei, however, shows herself to be quite the opposite. She was not going to go do what she was told without making some moves. I don't even judge Cersei for this plan because it's, it's all this business with arranged marriages and stuff is, you know, I'm not going to argue with someone pushing back against that too much. And it's also ironic because Tywin calls Tyrion disobedient in Tyrion 1, and we then pointed out Tywin's disobedience to his own father, and now we have Cersei doing far more than simple disobedience. This is an attempt to completely undermine her father's plans, and one that he never truly learns about, I don't think. So it's, it's less hypocritical than some other things we've accused him of, because this one he just wasn't aware of, I don't think. This chapter describes the fall of dynasties more than once then with the death of the Mad King dreamt of in a place where the Starks bent the knee to the line that would produce Ares. How Jamie didn't trust Robert because he too has Targaryen blood comes up here. And well, that's an interesting little bit. But also how little Jamie thinks of anything else. He's not, when he kills Ares, he's not thinking about ambition. He's not thinking about love. He's not thinking about duty, really. He's just thinking on the most basic human level. It's not okay to kill a bunch of innocent people with wildfire or otherwise. He has the power to stop it, and he did. Brienne would probably do the same. Well, she would probably be distraught at having to break one vow for another rather than be cynical about it like Jamie. But still, she would, if she was in his place, I do believe she would act in a similar way. And if she had Jamie's path to the Kingsguard, she might understand his cynicism. We must think of Sir Duncan the Tall here. Boy, does he hang over this scene. Not only is he Brienne's ancestor, most likely, but he was in the Kingsguard during a particular wildfire incident, too. Let's not think about too much about Summerhall. It's a big diversion, but while Dunk would probably not kill his own king, he had a tendency to think of the innocent first, too, like a knight should. Brienne would. Jamie did. Jamie acted exactly as a knight should act. Think of the innocent first. Do whatever needs to be done. Your own honor, like Corrin would say, is coin spent for the realm. Quote. Why did you take the oath? She demanded. Why don the white cloak if you meant to betray all it stood for? Why? What could he say that she might possibly understand? I was a boy. Fifteen. It was a great honor for one so young. That is no answer, she said scornfully. You would not like the truth. He had joined the Kingsguard for love, of course. I don't know about that, Jamie. I think she would understand. Parts of it, anyway. She joined the Rainbow Guard for love, too. And forbidden love, in a similar sense, as well with Jamie and Cersei. But isn't this just so utterly naive? I mean, wow. <laughs> We've talked at length about the dichotomy of love versus duty, a clearly prominent theme discussed openly in the story, and appearing throughout in more subtle ways, too. Like the Night's Watch. It's the death of love to serve in the Night's Watch. And because you're, you're serving duty, it's the same for the Kingsguard. 
This theme is going to come up in Tyrion 2 as well. The very next chapter when he talks to Sir Loras, someone else who joined the Rainbow Guard and loved the king he served. Loras, like Brienne and Jamie, is also very young when making all these life-changing decisions and vows. Not only is it naive, though, it's also a statement on how above the rules the truly powerful families feel. Cersei figures their status will be enough. She's like, all we got to do is be near each other. The rules don't matter. All we need is proximity, which is unfortunately exactly what happens. They don't even get that proximity. It's a nice parallel to the brand chapters and thinking about swords across laps and dead kings. So did Jaime wait on the Iron Throne with his sword across his lap until the arrival of a Stark, Lord Eddard himself. Quote. You had no right to judge me either, Stark. In his dreams, the dead came burning, gowned in swirling green flames. Jamie danced around them with a golden sword, but for every one he struck down, two more arose to take his place. A nod to the crypts of Winterfell, perhaps, and just after Jamie's fighting the dead. So maybe a double nod to the crypts. We've wondered if wildfire could be used against the dead before, and here's another time where we are wondering about that again, because it's presented that way. Dead people swirling in green flames with the crypt hanging over the scene. It's interesting. You could also suggest Jamie is having too many memories to run from, and from House Lannister having so many enemies, thanks to Jamie being the Kingslayer and his father sacking King's Landing. So maybe those are the, the dead that are being thought of here, all the many that were sacked Anyway, like Jamie saved King's Landing from Ares and only for his father to go do a lot of the same damage. It's also perhaps a bit of foreshadowing, though. It's a term we haven't used in a while because most of the foreshadowing is in book one. We know from George R. R. Martin's uh, plan, Jamie was originally intended to take the throne through murder and deception. It's in book one that Ned tells Robert of the same moment, finding Jamie on the throne. Robert laughs it off while Ned thinks it's serious. It was meant to be serious when first written because Jamie was going to try for the throne, but that isn't the plan that George went with eventually. He matured his plans for A Song of Ice and Fire and Jamie, which is interesting because instead of it being about power, it's about judgment. Jamie was going to be an ambitious killer. Interestingly, he got rid of the ambition, left the killer. Yet somehow the simplicity made him more complex. It opened up room for him to be more interesting. I mean, ambition, in a sense, it's, it can be so encompassing. A burning desire for power can leave little room for much else. So maybe that's why. Maybe someone who's a more experienced author could weigh in at some point because this is, this is writing technique and, and writing strategy that we're getting into. And judgment is a big part of this chapter. Brienne is harshly judging Jamie, but he reminds her how bad her story sounds. A shadow killed Renly? Yeah, we know it's true, but again, it's hard to believe for in-world characters that weren't there. They don't know Brienne's super loyal and that she loved Renly. And in fact, some of them argue that her love in Renly may have been part of her motivation, that she was spurned. So, we have to not get caught in our own perspective here. There's a lot of challenge in this chapter with regards to getting everyone's perspective straight. 
Jamie has a very good reason to be suspicious of Brienne, and she sounds like a huge hypocrite in re- repeatedly calling Jamie a king, a kingslayer when she appears to have literally committed the same crime. Jamie mocking Brienne for killing Renly might become incredibly ironic later if and when he kills Cersei. Talk about an event that people would judge him for. That's kinslaying, which is worse than kingslaying, even when you're a Kingsguard for most people in Westeros. If not worse, it's close enough or, you know, in the same league. And we compare Jamie and Cersei to Nerys and Aemon the Dragon Knight. But if Jamie kills Cersei, that the comparison would end on that point at least. To be fair, Jamie will later be somewhat convinced that Brienne didn't do for Renly. She didn't kill Renly because Renly's gorget, for example, it's cut in a way that defies explanation. It just doesn't make sense. Even Loras agrees. He's like, it doesn't, how could the, this steel have been cut like this? So there is evidence that it's supernatural. And Brienne, in turn, will be moved by Jamie by saving her, by what he says about Ares, uh, gradually becoming more believable as she gradually trusts him more. So she has more and more reason to believe the things he's told her as she trusts him more and more. And this is going to kick in higher gear when he loses his hand, which is his next chapter. So it's good to take note of where Jamie and Brienne's frustration with each other is leading because it's about to be, well, there's about to be a major event to, to change the course of it, to kick it into a like I said, into a higher gear. They, but they have so very much in common. It's hard to see that on a first read, but it's overwhelming, I think, on rereads. A big part of that is his building respect for her, which is part of why he opens up to her. You don't talk about things that matter to you. You don't share your secrets with people you have a disdain for. Yeah, I mean, maybe if it's to save your life or something like that, but you don't do it to bond with somebody that you don't like. He actually cares that she respects him, which is wild for Jamie because he usually doesn't care what anyone thinks of him. But because she embodies so much of knighthood in ways that he is cynical about, he has to respect her. She's good at things. She's good at fighting. She's good. She's been clever. It's just he can't deny that this respect is growing for her. And it's, it's kind of subconscious and this is, I think, part of why he has all these nasty thoughts in his head about insulting her. He calls her like a cow and all these other awful things. But I think that's him, his subconscious at work, he's rejecting that he's starting to respect her. And so he's pushing back subconsciously like, I kind of like, no, she's a stupid cow. Ah, she's kind of brave, but no, she's ugly. You know, it's kind of like that. It's peevishness. It's very childish. Now put yourself in her shoes. And it's clear enough why she dislikes Jamie and why she's distrustful. This is very straightforward, even though it's going to fall off over time. It doesn't need much explanation. Why Ned Stark and Roland Craycall, though, had reactions to seeing Jamie sitting on the throne with Ares dead at its foot? Another real exercise in perspective. So many characters with different values with regards to what honor means, with what justice means, with what duty means, with how you choose which duty is first when you have multiple duties with bravery. Each of these things provides a variety of potential ways in viewing something like what Jamie did with Ares. But we're also dealing with each individual perspective having a different version of events. For example, almost none of the people judging Jamie know anything about the wildfire. Jamie also thinks of the last few hands Ares had who were in and out of office so quickly. He thinks of killing the last, the pyromancer Rossart himself, 
But before him were Lord Chelstead, that's the one dipped in wildfire, Lord Merriweather, the, the one with the Horn of Plenty sigil, and relative to the Merriweather who marries Tana, the one who seduces Cersei in A Feast for Crows. So a little tiny nugget there. And finally, he thinks of good old John Connington, uh, who is the dancing griffin's hand. What we might hear, have here is another quote I'm going to bring up that it might be reverse foreshadowing here, um, something we've talked about before. It is a rare and precious gift to be a knight, she said, and even more so a knight of the Kingsguard. It is a gift given to few, a gift you scorned and soiled, a gift you want desperately, wench, and can never have. Never, Jamie? I don't know about that. Last chapter, we had the Sir Brienne mention. This is can never have. You may, in fact, be the one to, to turn that never into uh, ever. <laughs> Love it. That could come up to be incredibly ironic. Along the same point we brought up in the brand chapter about having a Rob point of view, this would have been really neat to have Rob or Catelyn here at the Inn of the Kneeling Man with the former king of the North as sort of a provoking moment, something to give thought to. Uh, maybe this whole chance, Lady Stoneheart, you know, into the kneeling man could come up again in that sense. Crossbow pointing at a Lannister. Joe Buckley points out that that could be a little nod to Tywin's fate later. I like that call. I missed that for sure. Now it's also ironic that they dodge an ambush that Arya and her friends fall into but really, they would have rather not. <laughs> it would be better to be captured by the Brotherhood because at this point, remember, they're not violent. They're just going to take your stuff and leave you. But by avoiding the Brotherhood, they're instead captured by the Mummers. Whoops. Uh, yeah. There's even more evidence of Jamie acting like Tywin and being Tywin's son with his whole... Who? How dare you judge me? That kind of thing. Like this, it's, it, it relates to Cersei and Jamie putting themselves above the rules with their trying to have proximity. Jamie is floored that Brienne would judge him. It's like, how dare you <laughs> judge me? Now, part of that is that he knows that he doesn't deserve all the scorn that he, so many people heap on him because of what Ares was actually doing. But it still reminds us of Tywin and how Tywin doesn't feel like anyone should be able to judge him. Uh, he's above all that. And that's definitely filtered down to Jamie. It's funny that Jamie mocks Brienne over the Kingslayer issue because it's another example of, of something that they have in common, even though they don't really have it in common. He mocks it even as it's another reason that they among many, that they're actually very similar. It's almost a case of, if I'm going to be bitter and hollow about my former dreams, I'm going to make sure you are too. It's uh, yet another tie into this Sandor Clegane, who is tied up in all this talk about knighthood and duty and, and all that. Realizing that Tyrion now matters much more publicly, that people would know he's a technically the heir now, that's a big part of Cersei and Jamie's thought process, it doesn't really come up. Yeah, Cersei says, would you rather have Casterly Rock or me? And Jamie's like, well, I'd rather have you. Neither of them really think about what that means for Tyrion. Now, obviously, it, it comes up and it matters. And they, of course, can't be aware that Tywin is going to deny that to Tyrion as well. But 
it's pretty interesting the the fallout of all this that none of them really realize and that it also directly leads to part of why Tywin leaves. He quits the capital after years of having to put up with Ares and this is something that, you know, Cersei and Jaime were not that aware of. I mean, they probably knew that Tywin didn't get along with Ares, but they may not have been aware that he had already resigned once before and they didn't consider that possibility with their planning. Like, oh, maybe maybe our father will just quit. That didn't occur to them. And we also wonder if Tywin knows, as we, we, we raised this question earlier, does he know, even whether he knows or not, rather, uh, that his children did had so much to do with screwing up his own plans, then <laughs> it, it would be quite a realization for him. All of this leads to him getting shot at the end of the book because Jamie and Cersei couldn't resist each other at Winterfell. <laughs> this kicks off the War of the Five Kings and that leads to, yeah, it's a little indirect, but it's pretty ironic. You wonder if Jamie's ever going to blame Cersei for any of this subconsciously. She really manipulated him. Now, of course, he had agency here. He could say no to her. He's like, no, I would rather have Casterly Rock than you, actually. But her her planning was pretty bad. It was very short term. It, it's typical of Cersei in a lot of ways, actually. Uh, Nina brings this up. It's, uh, it's, it's well said that her short term thinking is pretty smart, but she just doesn't consider the long term and how just because they have proximity with this plan doesn't mean that something can't come along to break that apart. But yeah. Nogo Frankel points out Jamie's biased advice to the kid with the crossbow. I brought this up briefly, but I said I'd talk about it later, and here we go. Jamie's wrong. A crossbow is is roughly the equivalent of a shotgun, meaning you put it in the hands of anyone, and all of a sudden, they're to be reckoned with. Like a, a five-year-old with a crossbow is dangerous, but a 13-year-old kid, which this boy is apparently, a spear? How is that a threat to a real warrior? You know, someone like Jamie himself for the Hound isn't going to be worried about a kid with a spear, but even the Hound and even Jamie have to be worried about someone with the crossbow. It can get through plate armor. I mean, it's simple physics. The force from the, the force generated by a crossbow that, that sends that bolt into a person. No teenager, with maybe the exception of say a Greg or Clegane, can generate that kind of force with their own muscles, let alone with that distance. So, Jamie's just wrong here. Crossbow's a fine tool for a kid in his position. Nina suggests the Jamie Lysa betrothal, since it was broken, may have been a reason we never hear about the Tully's presence at the tourney of Harrenhal. This is an interesting point for sure. The Tully's are not mentioned at the tournament in Harrenhal. Either way, this is odd because for them to not go is, a little, would, is worth mentioning, and especially because their family is connected to Harrenhal very directly. Catelyn's mother is a Went. That's the family that held Harrenhal. So them to pass on that tournament is interesting. But it's interesting that if they didn't go, that that wasn't mentioned. So either way, it's a little strange. Probably just some missing information. Maybe that gets clarified later. All right. Let us move on. It's Tyrion 2. The one where Tyrion's find firings are undone, a.k.a. Tyrion's Shea addiction. At last, Varys is back on screen for real. He was seen during the celebrations and did come to Tyrion's bedside when he was recovering, but we haven't had any conversations with him since Tyrion 11 in A Clash of Kings, and Tyrion had 15 chapters in A Clash of Kings. And they had a lot of conversations last book, but they, you know, they kind of, they stop, and well, now they get going again. Here we go, quote. The eunuch was humming tunelessly to himself as he came through the door 
dressed in flowing robes of peach-colored silk and smelling of lemons. Lemons again. Here they are, just popping up all over the place. So if, if Varys won't come to Tyrion, Tyrion will go to him. And this chapter does a lot to expand on Varys' character, his network, his skills and disposition. Some of it's right in front of us, but a lot of it is very subtle. Varys knows ways into Tyrion's rooms, which Tyrion's aware of. So Tyrion returns the favor and tries to look all over Varys' room for secret passages. He doesn't find them. Shay tells Tyrion that there are stairs below the bed. He's unable to figure out how to access them, but he knows they're there. That's sneaky for sure. But there might be another secret passage in this room because Varys leaves the room as soon as he brings them together and Tyrion doesn't realize he's left. Uh, there's no evidence that the, ba- the bed rose up during that brief moment of Tyrion not realizing what's happening. So uh, I'm guessing he took a different way out. He's astonished, Tyrion is, at how plain Varys's rooms are. Tyrion calls them excessively plain, as if to say they're so plain that they actually draw notice, which, well, that's exactly what's happening. So yeah. Given how over-the-top Varus is in other things, I suppose this fits in kind of a reverse way, but it's still rather surprising to see him sleeping on a stone bed no wider than a coffin. It's fitting in a way he's a man that came back from the dead in a sense, as that he was cut and abandoned and told to die. It's also indication of his former past as a street urchin. He probably slept outdoors on stone surfaces when he was young and Mirror and, and Lise and both, or maybe elsewhere. And we talked a lot about how Varus is portrayed somewhat devilishly during his introduction. So associating him with death in a coffin is kind of appropriate. Tyrion learned several bits of news that he'd missed since he was abed. That Pycelle is being returned due to the Citadel nearing a choice of Maester Gorman Tyrell. So recall what we said about Varus not liking the Tyrells and consider that maybe he's the one that told Tywin about Gorman Tyrell because, well, that is where Tywin gets a lot of his, his whispers from, is from Varys. And we know Varys has motivation to undermine the Tyrells here, as we discussed last episode. He doesn't want a well-oiled, well-efficient unit coming in to take over King's Landing. He wants chaos. He wants bad rulership so he can bring in the alternative. As is mentioned in this chapter, Magor the Cruel did indeed kill three Grand Maesters, at least two of them personally, with Blackfire. And the third one, he was found holding the Maester's head in his lap. Okay, Magor. And of course, Varus is going to kill Pycelle himself. So, yeah. It's interesting to think about how long Varus worked with Pycelle. I mean, Pycelle has been working at King's Landing since like 261, 262. Varus, not long after. Also in the 260s, roughly speaking. So 30-some years of working together. And, and Varus is so disciplined. As we see here in his personal life, he's extremely disciplined. So he doesn't make moves based on his own wishes. He, does his, he makes moves when he thinks it's the right time for his plan. So it's, it, I wonder if Varus was thinking when he finally kills Pycelle, he's like, finally, I get to do this. I've been wanting to do this for 25 to 30 years but he also knows the point here being that working with Pycelle so much, spying on him so much, dealing with him so much, he knows exactly what he's capable of. He knows exactly who he is, what kind of person he is, and thus he knows exactly when to remove him from the board, which we just discussed. And this scene, too, as I'm talking about Tywin and Varys, Varys tells Tyrion flat out that Tywin ordered Varys to spy 
on Tyrion. Likewise, Tywin has worked with Varys quite a lot, just as much as Pycelle has been a presence on the small council for a very, very long time. Tywin has been on the small council or in King's Landing in a rulership position for almost as long himself. So Varys also is just as familiar with Tywin and just as familiar with Tywin's hypocrisy and just as familiar with all the enemies Tywin has made. As powerful as Tywin is, Varys has quite a lot of ability to harm him and indeed does via Tyrion, the one most in the path of Tywin's hypocrisy. So he is able to later spin all of this and direct it at Tywin using Tyrion as the weapon. We know it's super likely Varys guided Tyrion to Tywin's chambers. Of course, that's what I'm referring to. And he probably had a reasonable expectation of uh, one or both of them ending up dead and Tywin more likely. I'm not sure Varys is telling the truth to Tyrion when he tells him that the Kettleblacks are reporting to Cersei, though. Well, the Kettleblacks are reporting to Cersei. And yes, he tells Tyrion that Osmond has begun to sleep with her. But what I mean is the Kettleblacks work for Littlefinger. Does Varys not know that? Or is he just not telling Tyrion? It's not really clear to me which, but I think I heavily lean towards him knowing and just not telling Tyrion. Now, of course, he's not covering for Littlefinger. But I think the point is, we talked about Tyrion being overly focused on Cersei at the expense of other threats. Varys wants that. Varys likes that Tyrion is too focused on Cersei and his own family because Varys wants Tyrion to separate from his family. He wants Tyrion to move away from his family. He wants him to become an enemy to his family. So having Tyrion focus on Cersei is like, yeah, let's not disturb that. Just keep doing that. He doesn't want to raise the issue of Littlefinger and distract him with someone who's actually more dangerous because if Tyrion starts focusing on Littlefinger, then he's not paranoid about Cersei and Tywin, which is exactly where Varys wants him to be. So it's probably reverse psychology when Varys points out how unwise it is for Tyrion to be seeing Shay because he would love for that situation to blow up. Again, what happens when Tyrion catches Shay with Tywin? He goes murderous. So it's all part of right in line with what Varys wants. You can see the, the gears turning even this early. Now Shay, on, on her side, talking, speaking of Tyrion just not noticing what's going on, Shay worries over her jewels and Tyrion thinks of it as kind of frivolous. He's, it's it's kind of hypocritical too because he makes a big deal about that golden hand necklace, but he's, he's peevish about it. But when it comes to Shay and her jewels, he's like, oh, come on, you're being a baby. And of course, that's an, again part of what drives him mad later when he finds her wearing that very same necklace, which he strangles her with, which is also a bit of a darkly ironic parallel because Tywin threatens to have Shay hanged if he catches... If she if he she's found in Tywin's Tyrion's bed, and of course Tyrion catches Shay in Tywin's bed and doesn't hang her but strangles her, which is pretty much the same thing. And Varys specifically uses the phrase, "Are you sure that's a wise? Your father will hang her." So all the same language is used very specifically and intentionally, almost certainly by George. What I was getting at with the jewels, though, it's not about looking fancy. It's not about her being frivolous. These are like her savings account. It's like an insurance policy if Tyrion is killed. She's in huge trouble if he's killed because now she's just stuck as a servant to Lollis without her lifeline to bigger things. He's so worried about what might happen to her via Tywin and Cersei 
but he doesn't consider what would happen to her if he dies. And that's a really big deal. And of course, while we're on the subject of Tywin and Shay, how did they end up hooking up in the first place? How did they find each other? Probably Varys. Again, this is all set up by him. After all the foreshadowing and set up for jealousy and conflict surrounding hiding Shay, he, his jealousy over her and this foreboding with Tywin, we get a little subtle hint about where Tyrion's head, head is because Bronn just casually mentions when he shows up, he's like, hey, I was just at Shataya's. I had Aliyaya and Murray at the same time. And he's just kind of, you know, he's bragging a little bit, but he's not trying to make Tyrion feel bad. But that is what happens. Tyrion gets jealous. And Tyrion, to his credit, he's confused at his own jealousy. He's like, why am I jealous about it? It doesn't make sense. But it's still meaningful because it's foreshadowing for, again, Tywin and Shea being together. But also, Tyrion is probably just jealous of anyone that can openly go to Shataya's without fear of punishment. He, wa- he would love to just be able to walk in there like a regular customer and not have to worry about something happening to him or the girl he sees or anything like that. And uh, that's, probably, that's probably part of his jealousy that he's, he's not realizing because, hey, <laughs> he's, he's got all this wealth and power, but he can't openly walk into a place to have some fun. Yeah, that's, that stinks for him, you know? But a lot of it also is, is who he is physically. He's also got no leg to stand on here in, uh, because he's with, with jewelry. Again, it comes up here. Uh, he's not great to Shay about the jewelry, but he's not great to Alayaya either. It says... He gave her a silver and jade necklace with matching bracelets. Okay, that's nice. But what she went through is worth way more than that, especially considering how much money Tyrion has at his disposal. That's a debt still unpaid, I'll say, Mr. Lannister. Speaking of the title of this chapter, the undone firings and all that, we have Boris Blunt restored to his white cloak. Had Selmy been around, perhaps he would have been restored to his cloak as well. But of course... He's nowhere near here. He's on his way to Slaver's Bay aboard the ship with uh, Daenerys and, and Jorah and all them. Another Kingsguard prominent in this chapter is Loras Tyrell. And this is some real pathos. This is wonderfully written, beautifully done, and has some amazing parallels to the other chapters that we're talking about today and in the future. Tyrion notes how strange it is to see Loras in all white after he was so accustomed to dressing up in extreme splendor. Similar to Jamie, who thinks about how he wished he had worn his golden armor when he killed Ares instead of his white armor. It's also a metaphor for all the color going out in Loras's life with Renly's death. It's like the savor, the loss. It's like there's nothing wonderful in the world anymore. And he dances around it a bit. He, he obviously isn't going to admit that Renly's death hit him so hard. So he says other things like this. It is not necessary for a third son to wed or breed. Not necessary, but some find it pleasant. What if love? When the sun is set, no candle can replace it. That is an incredibly quotable line, a beautifully stated, tragic, and often quoted out in the real world. But a formative relationship early in life that went very bad, one that wasn't really allowed by the standards of their society, So yeah, they have more in common than they realize. Tyrion even thinks of Tysha here, but doesn't realize who Loras is speaking of. He just assumes it's some girl. Now, we we briefly touched on this last time, with uh, last chapter and in the past and other spots with Aemon the Dragon Knight and Loras and how there's a lot of parallels here because, well, Aemon has a lot in common with Jaime. Loras has a lot in common with Jaime and 
transitive property applies. Loris has a lot in common with Eamon as well. Nina wrote up a great post on some of these specifics on our Facebook page and, and on her own blog. I, I recommend checking that out. I'm going to distill some of it here for time's sake and add a few of my own thoughts. Some simple parallels and some not simple ones. Laura's joining the Kingsguard and being unable to marry is part of the point. Sure, there's also that he thinks he'll never love again, but everything he's saying about duty and how third sons don't need to marry anyway, what I'm getting at is he doesn't want to marry. He doesn't want to be forced to marry. So this isn't a a way out of that. He's like, yeah, if I join the Kingsguard, no one's ever going to make me force me into a relationship that I'm not even oriented towards, let alone just arranged marriages can go awry for all sorts of reasons, even when if you are attracted to the person. Uh, Olena would not have forced him to marry against his orientation, probably, because she knows and have maybe have some sympathy for that. But Mace is probably just not aware of it and would just be, you know, I, I'm the Lord and I'm going to ma- marry my sons off. Also, look, Loris legitimately loves Marjorie. Now, as a sister, not in the incesty way, obviously. He's not even interested in women at all. But that's, again, a parallel to Jamie and Eamon with Cersei and Nerys. Now, Eamon probably did love his sister in the incesty way, though I doubt they actually slept together, whereas Jamie and Cersei certainly did. So you get all the range here. <laughs> Brother-sister love that's kind of pure. Brother-sister love that's less pure, but they keep it pure by not touching each other and straight up full-blown incest. <laughs> So Jamie and Cersei's queen slash Kingsguard relationship, brother-sister relationship is uh, unique in that sense. Now, Jamie, but Jamie also avoided an arranged marriage by joining the Kingsguard. He didn't want to marry anyone else. He didn't want to be with anybody else. So he was sort of, for similar reasons to Loras, not against the idea because it keeps him from that fate. But of course, Tywin just repeatedly tries to get around the rules, as we've discussed, of common enough feature for the Lannisters, being above the law, being above social standards. He's like, yeah, you're in the King's Guard, but we can get around that. You're the heir. So that means you need to get married. <laughs> of course, that comes up later when Tywin tries to not only marry Jamie off, but Cersei as well. Tywin also has a lot in common with Viserys II while we're on the topic of parallels. And that's important because Viserys II is the father of Aemon the Dragon Knight. So there's a huge amount of parallels between the fathers of these characters that have so much in common as well. I won't go too deep into that. That's a bit far afield. But we do talk about it in other episodes. Our Parallel Lives live stream, I believe I talk about it there. I definitely talk about it in the Blackfire series. I believe at least in episode one, which covers Aegon, the unworthy himself. One of those parallels is that Tyrion kills Tywin. And Aemon's brother, Aegon the Unworthy, may have killed their father, Viserys II, as well. There's a rumor about him poisoning him. So that may have happened. And Aemon the Dragon Knight, a figure of song and legend himself, which Jaime and Loras may be later as well. Who knows? They may be figures of song and legend in the future. But Aemon brings us to singer Simon Silvertongue. Because... You know, Simon Silvertongue likes to sing about legends and songs. That's what they do. All song singers do that for the most part. Tyrion realizes he's a threat in this here chapter. Again, as I said at the beginning, he doesn't realize just how big of a threat he is because at this point, he hasn't done any blackmail. But Tyrion is still tempted to kill him even at this point. But he thinks it would be wrong because unlike Tywin, Tyrion is not that kind of man. He's not that kind of ruthless. He's not so overly pragmatic that any threat to him 
overwrites his sense of justice. Tywin would absolutely just have Simon killed, no, no question. And Tyrion will do that later when he becomes more of a real threat. This comes with a mention of a certain dancing bear. Simon mentions a dancing bear because it's going to be at the Purple Wedding. We know that it's being arranged for. It's so funny because a lot of people talk about the dancing bear that's going to be at the, at the, at the Purple Wedding. When we actually get to the Purple Wedding, the dancing bear gets one line. It's barely mentioned because it's Tyrion like looks at it and he, he's like, that's an old bear. He says elderly, but old bear would, would give it away. And he thinks the bear is clumsy. <laughs> which Gior isn't maybe clumsy, but his leadership, strategic leadership is clumsy. <laughs> so I don't know if it's meant to be applying to that, but I, I think it's, it's really funny how this dancing bear turns out to be pretty pathetic. And, but it's also funny because much, much later, Jorah, again, of course, we're talking about Mormons, we talk about bears. When Tyrion is bought at the slave auction, along with Penny, Tyrion thinks... He stops himself and he's like, wait, slaver, you can't just buy us. You have to buy Jorah. He's part of our act, our act, the bear and the maiden fair. He's the bear. And Tyrion's like, why did I do that? Why did I save Jorah? But it's certainly worth bringing up here. We'll, we'll get into the why did he save Jorah later, but because that's a little uh, a future plot line. But this part is so relevant in tying it all together with the dancing bears which are apparently also a big deal in Norvos, where uh, Ario Hota remembers the dancing bears um, when when Doran Martell meets Melario, his wife, his estranged wife for the first time. All sorts of dancing bears. And of course, in Sam's chapter next week, we get an undead bear. So ugh, speaking of that, a couple thoughts from Joe. Speaking of far off consequences, Tyrion learns from Varys what we discussed last week. Cersei has changed the game in regards to the Kettle Blacks which is, uh, yeah, we talked about how Tyrion's focused on the wrong goal there, but we didn't really talk about how Cersei started sleeping with the Kettleblacks and how that is, as Varys puts it, an, an inexhaustible purse that Tyrion cannot match. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. This is going to come back later, too. We don't bring that up just for the humor, but because J- Tyrion is going to spitefully tell Jaime that Cersei's been sleeping with the Kettleblacks in response to what Tyrion sees is a spiteful reveal with regards to Tysha. So, yeah, that gets pretty ugly. But it's important to keep in mind here because that is uh, where it's going. And Joe also wonders what Cersei's objective is. Or why does she think the Kettleblacks are so useful? Why, what is it about them that makes her go this far in recruiting them? I mean, she doesn't sleep with all the other people she hires to be with her. I mean, she slept with Lancel, but that's different, very different. He's a young kid. And part of her family and, and reminds her of Jamie. There's no way the Kettle Blacks remind her of Jamie. They don't look anything like Jamie. They don't act anything like Jamie. Maybe a little bit with their swagger, but they don't back it up. Yeah, it's just, it is a little peculiar, but I think it's also a st- part of Cersei's paranoia. Again, she really, really thinks Tyrion's coming after her and she needs help. And uh, this is part of how she's going to get that help, especially because she thinks she's undermining Tyrion by stealing these guys away from him. They're in direct competition for the Kettleblacks. Getting back to Tyrion and Loras, Joe says that the talk consists of Tyrion being genuinely confused by Loras would be so hasty to give up all the benefits that Tyrion's own physicality denies him. So we have two sides of the coin here. Tyrion's physicality 
pushes him in the opposite direction, whereas Loris is gifted in every way possible. But they're both missing very crucial parts of what's actually going on in, inside their minds and what they're actually interested in. Of course, Tyrion has no idea Loras' orientation, and Loras has no idea of Tysha when Tyrion refers to his love. Okay, random thoughts from y'all. Uh, and one from a couple more from me. Tyrion reads Beldakar's History of the Rhoynish Wars in this chapter, which I'm like, yeah, maybe we should get that chapter instead. Give it to us. Yeah, History of the Rhoynish. Like, please, yeah. I want that badly. Great catch by Brendan the Bloodline on Patreon, who says, in Tyrion 2, they say Mandon is quite friendless, which is similar language to Sansa 6 when Peter says, you won't find a man with a mockingbird sewn over his heart, but that does not mean that I am friendless. Ah. And we've been looking for hints that Littlefinger is the one who sent Mandon to kill Tyrion. This might be uh, something to add to that list of evidence. They also bring up how Mandon Moore has kin in the Vale, and there's a hu- hugely hilarious, super sneaky quote. Bronn had turned up all he could on Sir Mandon. But no doubt Varys knew a deal more, should he choose to share it. The man seems to have been quite friendless. Tyrion said carefully. Sadly, said Varys, oh, sadly. You might find some kin if you turned over enough stones back in the Vale, but here... Ahem. Stones in the Vale, the place where bastards, i.e. some kin, are given the name Stone... In other words, he's saying if you look if you look at enough bastards, you may find one related to Sir Mandon. Ah, that's a sneaky one. Good one, George. That one only got by me twenty sometimes before I finally caught it. Nice catch uh, by Archmaester Rennie in this case, which also uh, imp- requires us to read a quote, which we love to do. So here we go. He lost control of his bowels. Great. <laughs> Told you'd Turn- love to read this one. Yeah, turned and ran <laughs> for the Iron Throne. Beneath the empty eyes of the skulls on the walls, Jamie hauled the last Dragon King bodily off the steps, squealing like a pig and smelling like a privy. The thing here is how similar this is to Tywin's death. Tywin doesn't react with panic, nor does Tyrion grab him, but the bit about the privy and bowels emptying, that's on the nose. Let's get a little uh, little slightly tinfoil here. If Tyrion is Aerys' son, then Jamie and Tyrion killed each other's fathers. If Jaime is Ares' son and Tyrion is Tywin's, then they both killed their own father. If Jaime kills Cersei, then they'll both be kinslayers. Basically, any combination here is pretty epic irony. And that's part of why it's hard to guess at the truth because they all sound like they could create interesting plot lines or conflict. But we'll just have to wait and see. Lady Leaf Underhill from the chat, live chat, says, also surprised Tywin restored the Kingsguard rather than support the precedent of breaking the for life thing with the eye towards getting Jamie out of the Kingsguard. Yeah, that's a great point. Restoring Boros Blunt because the Kingsguard served for life and then turning around and saying, Jamie, you're not in the Kingsguard, actually. But that also speaks to just how Tywin sees the rules purely as a convenience for him. Like, they serve his purpose to keeping other people in line, but he's above them. And so are his family. Lots of evidence for that in this chapter. Tywin just doing what he wants. Here is Arya 2. The gang is captured by the Brotherhood, a.k.a. the one where Harwin recognizes Arya. Again, a nice bookend to the Jamie 2 chapter, a rare case of two chapters taking place in the same location at nearly the same time. Jamie and Brienne encounter the inn, then dodge the outlaws Arya and company stumble into the outlaws and are brought to the inn. 
but Arya's group comes out ahead in this exchange. Since being captured by the Brotherhood means not being captured by the Mummers, Arya and Hot Pie and Gendry thus keep all their body parts, unlike Jamie, and they get to sing. I don't know if Jamie would have wanted to sing, but hey, Arya uh, gets to. And though she's not a big fan of singing, Arya has another in a long line of astute thoughts for someone her age, realizing that the singing means these aren't the bloody mummers. That in itself is a bit telling, isn't it, too? <laughs> About meaning the mummers. Like, the mummers are so dark and uh, evil, they, they won't even sing. <laughs> Don't trust someone who doesn't like singing, right? No, I'm, not, I'm kidding. They get to drink ale in this chapter, our... Uh, Hot Pie is awfully happy about it while Jamie gets to drink horse urine later. So not only do they not get their parts cut off, but they don't have to drink horse urine. The chapter begins with a reminder of two of our themes. She was grubbing for vegetables in a dead man's garden when she heard the singing. Life and death and singing all mixed together. Gardens and food symbolize growth. and A renewal. song of life and death. <laughs> yeah. And a dead man is typical for war. But he has a micro legacy here. His efforts are keeping others alive. The work he did in his life is, is still there and mattering. And we even get the name of this dead man who's gardening it. This is Old Pate, Tom says. But maybe Tom's lying about that. Tom could just be making up the fact that he knew him. After all, Pate is an extremely common name in Westeros. Uh, and we get a common song, too. Again, the bear and the maiden fair comes up. Hot Pie sings it well. As I said, Arya's not a huge fan of singing. And maybe that's because Sansa is good at singing. And San- and she kind of resents things that Sansa's good at. That Yeah, it was, it's a part of the early Game of Thrones chapters. But she does seem to start to like it. She notices that the miles pass by quicker because of the singing. So she warms up to it. Hot Pie gets another moment to shine beyond singing. He talks lovingly of bread in a way that's almost comic relief and entirely stress relief. It's a bit of a setup because, you know, bad things are coming, but hey. But not for Hot Pie, necessarily. It's good and appropriate because for him to have this moment because he's about to exit the story. Hopefully not for good. But mm, as far as we know, he's continuing to thrive to this day. He's still at this inn, ready to put his skills to work. In the show, Arya and Hot Pie are reunited briefly. It's a nice heartwarming scene that changes Arya's plans because... She gives news he wasn't aware of. Perhaps hoping for a similar happy ending-ish type meeting in the books is too much to hope for. But I remain optimistic. I think there's a good chance for this. I wonder as well if the end won't have more significance later. Maybe just a throwaway line or two. But if it doesn't come up in A Dance with Dragons as part of a more major plotline, maybe even though these two aren't innkeepers now, it's repeatedly said in Jamie's chapter, the innkeeper who was not an innkeeper, Maybe Hot Pie being the baker there is going to make it a real end. People are going to come from miles away to eat these delicious treats. Upon arriving there at the end, we get the immediate signs that this was the same place Jamie and Brienne and Cleos were just at. Their boat is seen by Arya, and she considers it as a means to escape, which is funny because all this talk of stealing and loyalty and, and all that and uh, people having to do what they have to do, <laughs> that's her ship. <laughs> that's the Tully ship right there. She she could pull rank and be like, hey, I'm a daughter of River Run. That's mine more than anyone else's. Not that they would listen to her, but if she knew that who that ship belonged to, she would have at least tried probably. <laughs> so they specifically discuss, meaning the outlaws, Jamie and Brienne and Cleos. They say that Brienne was big and that 
Jamie had that dangerous look in his eyes. They were so close to meeting. And I really wonder, what a what if that would be. A lot of people in our chat and in the people sending questions ahead of time wonder what kind of conundrum that would have presented for Brienne if she had to decide between keeping with Arya and, and looking out for her and delivering Jamie to King's Landing. She can't do both. She doesn't want to take Arya to King's Landing. That's a terrible idea. What would she have to do? Stay at the inn and stay with Arya? She's, it's, it's, it would be a real... I, I imagine George considered doing this because think about how it puts her vows in conflict and it would have, it would be Jamie be like, see, see, vows in conflict. Now you know what I'm talking about. We, she would have to choose between her vow to Catelyn and her, the same vow to Catelyn with Arya being right there, uh, but with different meanings. So, hmm. Uh, I, I bet George considered doing that, but for other reasons, just for other reasons, he didn't. Who knows what those reasons are? George is, keeps his own company on that. I love also uh, more food-related uh, storytelling here. Angai talking about the Dornish girl giving him, bat, giving him duck with lemons. It reminds me of the Dornish's wife song. Um, it's not really that close. No, there's no implied jealousy or death in this story, except for the duck, I suppose. Angai is from the Dornish marches, and that's an area that traditionally hates the Dornish. It's easy to hear Dornish marches and think that's in Dorn, but it's not. It's the area that's uh, on the border. With Dorn. So it's in fact, yeah, they hate the Dornish. So it's a cross cultural anecdote from a member of a very cross cultural group. The Brotherhood is filled with all types of sorts of people. Of course, the chapter ends with Harwin recognizing Arya and kneeling to her, which is another great moment of synchronicity. It is fitting that a man kneels to a Stark. At the end of the kneeling man. <laughs> but George takes pains to conceal that that's what's happening because he tells us it's the end of the kneeling man in the Jamie chapter, and that name is not repeated in this chapter. So you got to be on top of things to catch that. But he kneels to her not only because she's a Stark, but because she's the daughter of the Hand of the King, and the Brotherhood still recognizes Robert, and, and his choice for Hand was Ned. So you got to have those things together little catch by Nina about how the Brotherhood defers to Arya. They real, quickly realize who's in charge. Normally you would expect a group of dudes to expect the biggest, oldest male to be in charge, especially amongst youngsters. But Gendry is not. And like Bran, they let Arya lead. They're like, or they let her decide. She says, you go in front, we'll ride behind you. And they say, sure, why not? They want to let her feel more comfortable. They know she's scared. They don't want to make her feel more scared. They know that she can't get away. So like, yeah, sure, go ahead, ride in front. and uh, Or ride behind us, it's fine. So yeah, a little bit like Mira and Jojen and Bran. Before you know it, according to Joe, back at the end of The Kneeling Man, it's funny to be back there so quickly. Jamie sees unwelcomeness, signs of war in a place that has left the rules of society behind. Arya is told of something quite the opposite. A real testament to how George can create two different atmospheres and descriptions of the same place in a very short span of chapters. So talking about the Brotherhood and lying and uh, maybe, maybe the right term here is the lesser evil. Certainly the Brotherhood without banners is nowhere near as bad as the Mummers. Sure, they lie, they rob, they probably assault and murder. Maybe not yet have they started murdering. We know they're going to. But we know that a lot of it is given to a lot of their proceeds from this, these crimes, is given to rescue children and other abused small folks. So 
it's definitely wrong to put them in the same category as other bandit types who are only out for themselves. But it does beg the question, where is that line? What's right? What's wrong? When do they cross the line into looking out for themselves? When is it no longer justice? When is it no longer just? Well, again, who knows where the line is, but we know that at some point they cross it. We haven't gotten there yet, but it's also kind of hypocritical for Tom to be like, you're stealing food from a dead man's garden. (laughs) Like, hey, (laughs) hello, you just stole all our stuff and we're kids. So yeah, anyway. Interesting too, that this inn is the setting for the Brotherhood uh, being introduced so much. Of course, we've seen them before, but this is a real introduction and and the start of a a longer arc with them. It, It harkens back to Catelyn capturing Tyrion at the end of the crossroads. This is sort of the small folk taking charge. Back then, you know, Catelyn sort of just stood up and took over because of who she was. And not that I'm saying she did something wrong here, but the, the small folk just have no, have so little agency there. And you could see some of them were wary. They were like, what is she saying here? What are they drawing us? What is this lady drawing us into? What is, what is her plan here? What are we, we're going to wish we hadn't followed her. And some of them, the ones who did follow her. Yeah. They probably wish they didn't. The ones who lived anyway, the ones who didn't, I mean, certainly would wish they didn't follow so that's really interesting to think about all that, the, the, the power dynamics of, of, that happen in these settings of, of inns versus what we're more used to seeing, places like castles and throne rooms and things like that. It's, it's also sad to think about how when the Brotherhood starts riding up and she thinks that they're going to capture her and she starts to realize what's going to happen, that it sends her back to being a mouse, that she thinks of how losing her sword is going to take away her agency and makes her feel like she's going to be back in a situation that was similar to the mountain, which can't blame her for feeling that way, even though we know that's not the truth. But also it's worse than she thinks. So much of this is set up as a bit of a relief, but we know it's not because of how dark things are going to get with the brotherhood and with her escape and how it's going to lead to Stoneheart and her going off to Bravos. A few other thoughts, some of them, most of them from y'all. Huge, huge reaction to the humanity in the moment between Harwin and Arya. Lots of feels in our discussion groups, people weighing in on that, talking about how meaningful it was. Also with the bittersweetness of knowing that Harwin's not really going to be as much of a savior as he seems like. Also got to shout out Roy Dotrice doing a fantastic job with the voice work in that scene. The emotion is very uh, comes through. His acting is great there. Uh, We talked at the beginning of this episode about how important the identity theme is here. And I pointed out that she doesn't say her name. She waits for Harwin to remember if he can. And we can expand on that a little bit by pointing out that only Jockin and Gendry have heard her say it. Even Hot Pie only learns it here at this final moment. And he doesn't get to react to it until the next chapter because the chapter ends with Harwin's kneeling before we get to see what Hot Pie and others actually say. Bronwyn Holler from Facebook points out that Arya recognizes the truth of eating while in Nymeria, right? This is uh, probably more reference to, the, to, Ar- to, Bran- to Arya 1, but doesn't matter. It's reference to Bran 1 from this chapter. It's a good, important parallel. In other words, Bran gets lost in summer and is really taken in by 
the feelings and the desire and the satisfaction of being in summer, whereas Arya is much more rational, much more logical, and knows that wolf streams are not nourishing and that's not going to work out for her. And she immediately rejects that, whereas Bran leans into it. It's a real joy following their parallel progressions as wargs and skin changers, pick your term. One getting schooled while the other isn't. Well, John is another test case in the mix as well. A particular joy because it's still an unresolved mystery. Not only is it fun for us to go through and re and rehash some of these things that we may have missed, but we don't know where it's headed because it's one of the biggest aspects of the Starks, if not the entire series that was very vaguely dealt with on the TV show. It's almost like I don't mind. On one hand, it would have been cool to have a lot more of that on the TV show to have more direwolf action. But on the other hand, it means we get this awesome mystery left from us. Something excellent to look forward to. Thanks to Nina, who brought us over some thoughts from Stephen Atwell, friend of the show, frequent contributor. Uh, he also has his own chapter-by-chapter reviews on Race for the Iron Throne. Not in podcast form, in, in essay form, but don't let that slow you down. He, his writing is fantastic. Check that out if you get the chance. In this case, his contribution is to bring up some parallels to The Brotherhood Without Banners and Robin Hood. Will Scarlet dresses all in red. Lem Lemon Cloak dresses all in yellow and their personalities are reflected by the color. Will Scarlet is a fiery, passionate guy. Lem Lemon Cloak is dour, sour, etc. <laughs> Angai is meant to be Robin, almost certainly. Now, Angai's not the leader like Robin is, but there's no mistaking that extraordinary skill with the bow. And Tom O'Sevens would be Alan Adele, the singer of uh, the Merry Band. Now, there's other Brotherhood Without Banners and there's other... Merry Men, maybe more parallels to come later, but we haven't met the rest of the Brotherhood, so we'll hold off on that. It was Allison Howland who brought up the question, what if Brienne had encountered Arya so early on that led me to these thoughts about broken vows and how that would have created a similar conundrum that Jamie could kind of laugh at her in sarcasm for saying, see, this is that thing you didn't believe me on. <laughs> but maybe it would have been too early because Jamie hasn't told his full story to Brienne yet. She doesn't know about the wildfire. It's interesting that Ross Art was brought up and that Jamie killed Ares, but it isn't actually mentioned uh, so clearly that Ares was going to blow everyone up. That's just something we know from being rereaders. Uh, but Brienne, again, has not learned that yet. Okay, that is it for today. Let's t- do a quick outro and that'll be it. As I said last week, I was going to start adding in lengths for each episode so we can kind of do a little fun comparison. Last week, we covered... 176 minutes and 41 seconds of the audiobook. This week, we covered 172 minutes and 38 seconds, so almost the exact same. That puts us 480 minutes into the book. Uh, This week's video was almost exactly two hours. So if you're listening to the pod version afterwards, you can, can compare the length of the podcast version to the length of the video to know how much got edited out. Usually that's just ums and uhs and pauses and me taking a while to to say my quote yeah (laughs) but occasionally it's a little more so yep a little bit slightly tighter version if you get the pod version but you know the pod version doesn't have the visuals like my shirt that we talked about (laughs) we provide multiple versions for you to choose from or aziz's hair you woke (laughs) up like that (laughs) my hair is so puffy today (laughs) i did just woke up i did just wake up like this (laughs) little eighth grade reference for those of you who've seen that fine fine film all right next week we have 
Catlin 2, the gang meets Jane, a.k.a. the one where the phrase storm off. John 2, the gang finds the fist, a.k.a. the one where John loses face. Sansa 2, the one where Sansa outs the Tyrell marriage plot, a.k.a. what you talking about, Willis? Arya 3, the one with the BWB origin story, a.k.a. the gang chases Arya. Yeah, and finally, and finally, Sam 1. The gang flees the fist, a.k.a. the one where Sam's a slayer. It's still not too late for me to change that to the gang gets fisted. <laughs> yeah, it's not too late. You can you can say that next week. <laughs> we'll let everybody else decide whether I should change it. Weigh in on that or anything else you want to weigh in and send us your questions for next week or questions for later weeks or for anything we've already covered that we may have missed. We're always willing to go back and, and talk briefly about something that deserves talking about that we missed. But the fact that we have so many of y'all contributing means we miss very little, even though there's so much to miss. So I appreciate all everybody who contributed on the fan side, on the patron side, uh, whether it's from discussion groups. Again, shout out to our History of Westeros mods who lead the chapter discussions on Facebook while also posting art to go along with it. Again, Flick and Slack and Discord are other venues for discussing the chapters and just all things A Song of Ice and Fire slash History of Westeros. Join us there if you feel so inclined. Thanks to Ashea for wearing all the hats as she does, wielding the many arms of a kraken so efficiently and actively. Couldn't do it without her. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the maps. Thanks to Kevin McLeod and Joey Townsend and Jesse Koal for the music. Thanks to our Benjineer for the audio editing. And again, thanks to all of our member Westorians for their financial contributions. And thanks to everyone who has shared, liked, subscribed, and told their friends. You'd be surprised how much that makes a difference. Maybe you wouldn't be. If, you don't, if you're not surprised, then hey, help us out. Give us a like. <laughs> all right, folks, that's it. We'll see you next week for more Bellar Reredus. Reredus.